This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This article contains strong language. Hi, I'm Andy Beckett, and I'm a Guardian columnist and feature writer, and I've spent an unhealthy amount of time in my career writing about conservatism. I'm the author of this piece, A Zombie Party, The Deepening Crisis of Conservatism, which was first published in May 2019. I had the idea of the article in early 2019 when Theresa May was in power in Britain and Donald Trump was president in America, and they were both struggling in office. And I had an idea that although conservatism appeared to be in a kind of strong place, in reality, there were kind of weaknesses underneath. So I went to my editors and said, can I write a piece about how conservatism may not be as strong as we think it is, and it may have deep-seated problems. And they said to me, are you sure about this? Is this not Guardian kind of wishful thinking? But I managed to persuade them, and that's why I did the piece. The article was really to explore the health of conservatism. So how healthy are its ideas? Are they getting a bit stale? Is it still socially relevant? Is it an appropriate philosophy for dealing with, you know, the problems of capitalism nowadays with the climate emergency? Is it still working as a kind of electoral machine? So I wanted to kind of explore those questions. And what I found was that since the 1980s, which is the kind of high point of conservatism in Britain and America, I would argue, the era of kind of Reagan and Thatcher, a lot of aspects of conservatism had gone into decline or had become weaker, more vulnerable. And the piece is a kind of exploration of those weaknesses. One of the things that I thought about a lot when I did the article was how conservatism has become more kind of manic, how it changes philosophies quite quickly now, leaders are changed quite quickly, governments fall quite quickly. And I think particularly the last six weeks really show that conservatism's kind of on fast forward and it's kind of cycling through lots of different philosophies. You know, let's shrink the state, let's level up, let's leave Europe, you know, let's um, do compassionate conservatism, let's do nationalism. Let's do kind of big business conservatism, small business conservatism that in Britain and in America, I think the Republican Party and the Conservative Party have been rushing through all these different options. And I think that's never a healthy sign in a party if it's racing through all its options. If a party's kind of strong or confident, it has a resilient set of ideas and tactics that it kind of works through over a long period of time. And I don't think we're seeing that now. And I, of course, want to congratulate absolutely everybody involved in securing the biggest Conservative majority since the 1980s. The piece that I wrote came out in May 2019, and about six months later, um, the Conservatives won the general election in Britain with quite a big majority. And I remember when they did that, I thought, have I got this all completely wrong? 
But I thought, no, you know, the diagnosis, I'm going to stand by this. And I guess what I'd say now is not that the article is completely right or prophetic, but that quite a few of the things that I identify as weaknesses in the article are now kind of resonating more and more in the news cycle and may well resonate in the next US presidential election in a couple of years' time. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. A Zombie Party the Deepening Crisis of Conservatism by Andy Beckett Legislation alone can't solve our problems, nor will they disappear under a shower of tax dollars. Can we possibly believe that anyone can manage our lives better than we can manage them ourselves? Conservatism is the dominant politics of the modern world. Even when right-wing parties are not in power, Conservative ideas and policies set the shape of society and the economy. There is no such thing as public money. There is only taxpayers' money. Ever since the transformative 1980s governments of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, with their new fusion of disruptive capitalism and social traditionalism, the assumption in Britain, the US and far beyond has been that conservatism is the default setting of democratic politics. Even when other parties have been in office, leaders such as Tony Blair and Bill Clinton have continued with the conservative project of privatising the state and deregulating business. For decades, armies of right-wing activists with rich financial backers and many allies in the media have successfully spread and entrenched conservative ideas. many of conservatism's opponents have come to expect that somehow it will always prevail. Despite the spectacular failure of Theresa May's premiership and the unpopularity of her divided party, the contest to succeed her is likely to dominate British politics this summer, as if the identity of the Tory leader is its weightiest matter. The Republican Donald Trump despite the most consistently bad approval ratings of any modern US president, is widely thought to have a good chance of re-election. In today's otherwise unstable, fast-changing political world, conservatism has an air of permanence. Yet this aura has led to an overconfidence about conservatism's underlying health. In Britain and the US, once the movement's most fertile sources of ideas, voters, leaders and governments a deep crisis of conservatism has been building since the end of the Reagan and Thatcher governments. It is a crisis of competence, of intellectual energy and coherence, of electoral effectiveness, and perhaps most serious of all, of social relevance. This crisis has often been obscured. The collapse of Soviet communism in the 80s, the apparent triumph of capitalism during the 90s, the Western left's own splits, dilemmas and failures, and the ongoing surge of right-wing populism have all helped maintain conservatism's surface confidence. Meanwhile, the right-wing media's fierce, enduring faith in the ever more distant politics of Thatcher and Reagan has helped delay the moment of recognition that those politics have grown obsolete. The right is still winning elections, from India to the European Parliament, but transatlantic conservatism, as we have known it since the 80s, pro-capitalist, anti-government, controlled by the traditional parties of the right, 
may be dying. The signs of this crisis have been around for years for those who cared to see them. In Britain, the Conservatives last won a solid general election majority 32 years ago in Thatcher's final landslide victory. The Republicans have won the popular vote only once in the last seven presidential elections, in 2004, in the afterglow of George W. Bush's deceptive early successes in the Afghan and Iraq wars. The numbers are haunting, says Charles Kessler, a leading conservative political scientist who teaches at Claremont McKenna College in California. The Republican Party has been telling itself for decades that it is on the verge of becoming a majority party. It has long been a central claim of conservatism that it represents what Richard Nixon called the silent majority. Yet over recent decades, says Kessler, all those hopes have been disappointed. Since the 90s, Britain and the US have steadily become more urban, multiracial, more connected to other countries, and in some ways at least, fairer to women. Meanwhile, support for the Tories and the Republicans has grown ever more concentrated in towns and rural areas and among white men. While Reagan and Thatcher looked forward as well as back, promising both to build a new world and to restore an old one, as in Reagan's famous 1984 campaign slogan, It's Morning Again in America, conservatism has since become increasingly imprisoned by nostalgia. The Tory party has doubled down on exploiting older people's feelings about the modern world, says Andrew Cooper, conservative peer and co-founder of the polling and social research firm Populous. The party has got itself on the wrong side of a huge values divide. Across Britain, he says, people under 45 have an increasingly open, meaning liberal, worldview. This liberalism will not fade as they enter old age, he predicts, a shift on which conservatism has long relied, because it is largely pragmatic, a response to a more diverse and interdependent world. In 2004, the Republican Senator Lindsey Graham summed up conservatism's problem with modern demographics and social attitudes more bluntly, saying, we're not generating enough angry white guys to stay in business for the long term. The UK Conservative Party membership has been dwindling for decades. At its peak in the early 50s, it was 2.8 million. Last year, it was 124,000, and the party received twice as much money from dead members through wills as from the living. Katie Balls, political correspondent of the usually pro-Tory Spectator magazine, described the Tories last year as a zombie party. Intellectually, the movement certainly seems barely alive. A sense of entropy hangs over the right-wing think tanks that used to show conservative governments how to change society. These institutions have grown old together. The American Enterprise Institute was founded in 1938, the Institute of Economic Affairs in 1955, the Heritage Foundation in 1973, the Centre for Policy Studies in 1974, the Adam Smith Institute in 1977. Despite all the setbacks for their free market project, the financial crisis, the diminishing returns of capitalism for most people, the collapse of such once lauded examples of outsourcing and deregulation as Enron and Carillion, the failures of privatised services ranging from trains to probation, the think tank's answer to every problem has remained essentially unchanged. Lower taxes, less regulation, smaller government. 
The Tories, both in government and more generally, seem to have stopped talking and thinking about economics, wrote Stian Westlake, until January, an adviser to a succession of Tory ministers in a widely shared article last month. Britain's right-wing intellectual life, he wrote, had become performative rather than practical, play-acting and position-taking rather than fighting the real battles. Cooper describes the current conservative intellectual landscape as a desert. For years, right-wing politicians and strategists have been wandering it and finding only mirages. These promise a new conservatism, one that will make the movement modern again, or restore its broad appeal, or reunite its radical and traditional factions, which have been acrimoniously growing apart ever since Reagan and Thatcher left office. But these visions of renewal have melted away. The compassionate conservatism, briefly promoted by Bush, the big society, optimistically sketched by David Cameron, the anarchic deconstruction of the state advocated by Trump's bombastic advisor Steve Bannon, the anti-metropolitan conservatism proposed by May's equally confident and ill-fated advisor Nick Timothy, all have been tried and quickly abandoned. There's an effort to find a winning formula, says Corey Robin, author of The Reactionary Mind, probably the most acclaimed recent book on conservatism. They're cycling through all these ideas faster and faster. They're running out of options. As a political practice and philosophy, conservatism is famously durable and flexible, hard to define precisely. For centuries, many conservatives have insisted that their politics is about preserving things and avoiding ideology. But in practice, the most effective conservative politicians have often done the opposite. Robin, who is on the left, argues that behind the facade of pragmatism, there has remained an unchanging conservative objective, the maintenance of private regimes of power, usually social and economic hierarchies, against threats from more egalitarian forces. Once democracy arrived, conservatives were faced with a harder task, he argues. They needed to make privilege popular, or at least popular enough for them to hold office. Under Reagan and Thatcher, conservatism's solution to this conundrum was to promote a Darwinian but supposedly inclusive capitalism that was meant to keep the economy evolving while also preserving the social structures that conservatives favour, such as the traditional family. Yet since the 80s, the economic benefits of this model have steadily become thinner and more narrowly distributed. Meanwhile, its social costs have increasingly been felt by conservative-inclined interest groups, such as shopkeepers and people living in small towns. In this unsettled, disillusioned political environment, Conservatives had depended more and more on extraordinary means to win power. The narrow and partisan Supreme Court ruling that awarded Bush victory in 2000, the last-minute coalition with the Liberal Democrats that made Cameron Prime Minister in 2010, the Russian assistance that helped Trump narrowly outflank Hillary Clinton's lumbering campaign in 2016. 
At the same time, conservative administrations have tried to tilt the electoral process against left-leaning social groups such as the young, the transient and recent immigrants. Registering to vote and voting itself have been made more difficult, with more documents required despite little evidence of electoral fraud. Conservative parties retain their legendary will to win, but winning seems a greater and greater strain and is being achieved by less and less inspiring means. What does it say about us as conservatives, asks Cooper, if our only hope for the next generation of voters is that they don't vote? Belatedly, some on the right have begun to ponder such unsettling questions. Last month, the former Tory leader William Hague warned in the Telegraph that his party had failed to notice that the world outside our ranks is changing. He concluded bleakly, I inherited a party in ruins. The next leader may find even less. Three years ago, the Claremont Review of Books, a conservative journal edited by Charles Kessler, published a despairing denunciation of the whole enterprise of Conservatism, Inc., the well-funded American world of right-wing think tanks, media outlets and political conferences. Its sole recent and ongoing success is its own self-preservation, wrote the article's anonymous author, later revealed as a relatively unknown right-winger Michael Anton. The last chance for conservatism to save itself, Anton wrote, was to play Russian roulette by supporting the worse-than-imperfect Trump in the 2016 election. Shortly afterwards, Anton was appointed as a spokesman for Trump's National Security Council. The rise of right-wing populists such as Trump and Nigel Farage has convinced many people that populism is conservatism's latest potent incarnation. But its electoral success may be a sign of conservative decay rather than renewal. Farage and his allies are fragmenting the right-wing vote and are even more dependent than the traditional Conservative parties on white male rage against a changing world. British philosopher John Gray, a close and sometimes sympathetic observer of the global right since the 70s, sees the new right-wing populism and the established Conservative Party's attempts to emulate it as signs of an age-old Conservative sense of entitlement turning to panic. Conservatives still think their ideas about how the world should be are natural, he says, but they can feel the electorate slipping away from them. The result is a politics of wild, disconnected gestures attempts to grab back the electorate's affection. When Boris Johnson said fuck business last year in response to corporate opposition to Brexit, we saw the most likely next leader of a party that has been intimate with business for centuries, behaving with a recklessness that felt hugely significant and counterproductive. It was a sign that the alliance between capitalism and conservatism may be coming apart. Conservatives always used to pride themselves on their competence, says Gray. It could take 20 years for the idea that they're the grown-ups to come back. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. 
In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. I, uh, I think that's just been arranged. During the 80s, Thatcher and Reagan seemed to have created a conservatism that would last. In 1988, at the end of Reagan's second term, records David Farber, in his 2010 book The Rise and Fall of American Conservatism, For the first time since such polling data existed, more Americans identified themselves as conservatives than liberals. It is wonderful to be entrusted with the government of this country, this great country, once again. In Britain, after Thatcher won her third consecutive election in 1987, the political theorist Stuart Hall warned his mostly left-wing readership that she had overseen the creation of a consumer society so complete that a tiny bit of all of us is inside the Thatcherite project. Just before the anti-Thatcher demonstration, Hall wrote, we go to Sainsbury's. For all their triumphalist rhetoric, Thatcher and Reagan appreciated that their transformative project sometimes needed to be pursued with caution and slyness. Both had risen during the 60s and 70s when liberal and left-wing interest groups were strong and had learned not to take on too many enemies at once. As Prime Minister, Thatcher caricatured trade unions as bullies but took away their powers only gradually, 
making sure she kept enough of the public on her side. As president, Reagan attacked welfare spending as profligate and immoral, but did little to cut popular programmes. But during the final all-conquering years of their governments, transatlantic conservatism began to lose this tactical astuteness. Conservative movements need enemies, as Corey Robin points out. They are literally reactionary, finding energy when they have a threat, usually from the left, to react against. But by the end of the 80s, the enemies that had drawn so many British and American right-wingers into politics since the Second World War, from Soviet communism to strong trade unions, had been defeated seemingly for good. Without them, many Conservatives entered a period of introspection, wrote George H. Nash, then the leading historian of the American right in 1996. They wondered what purpose conservatism should now have. Irving Kristol, the influential American conservative, intellectual and activist, once told Robin that after the end of the Cold War, we got kind of flabby. Conservatism went from what Robin calls the classroom, the contested but educational environment of the post-war years, into the playground of the prosperous, relatively carefree 90s. Some Republicans acted as if this playground ought to be theirs alone. After Clinton was elected in 1992 and re-elected in 1996, instead of reflecting on his victories and realising they were early signs that modern conservatism could be vulnerable, that its ideas could easily be stolen and repackaged by centrist politicians, they treated his presidency as an affront to be resisted by almost any means. They constructed what the journalist Kurt Anderson calls a fantasy industrial complex of talk radio stations and websites that manufactured and distributed news of unsubstantiated Clinton conspiracies. Meanwhile, the right-wing media magnate Rupert Murdoch ordered the creation of America's first national television channel essentially devoted to anti-Democrat, pro-Republican propaganda – Fox News began broadcasting in 1996. Together, these developments marked the beginning of the modern conservative media bubble. Inside it, as the historian of the American right, Rick Perlstein, put it in 2005, conservatism never fails. It is only failed. Conservatism had become a faith. Any failures by the right were blamed on a lack of belief. The movement also grew more rigid and inward-looking in Britain. Thatcher was ejected from Downing Street in 1990, largely for insisting on unpopular policies such as the poll tax. Yet for the next four leaders, John Major, William Hague, Ian Duncan Smith and Michael Howard, the Conservatives stubbornly chose keepers of the Thatcherite flame, as if her ideas simply hadn't been applied for long enough. All the current leading candidates for the Tory leadership are also essentially Thatcherites. During the late 90s, when Haig was leader, Andrew Cooper was his director of strategy. He wrote Haig a memo, suggesting he repositioned the party to adjust to the fact that public attitudes were now shifting leftwards in reaction to the inequalities and strained public services left by Thatcherism. Haig initially welcomed the document, but within literally two weeks, Cooper remembers, it was clear he wasn't following it. I began nagging him, he began getting irritated, so I resigned. Cooper was left with a suspicion about his party that has never dissipated. 
A lot of Conservatives still think our policies should be a literal repeat of what Margaret Thatcher did in the 80s. Yet these true believers fail to see that she and many of her lieutenants ultimately found themselves bewildered in some ways by the new country they had helped create. A few days after Thatcher's death in 2013, I interviewed her former employment secretary, Norman Tebbit. A social conservative like Thatcher herself, he told me he now worried her government had loosened the country morally, not just economically. I sometimes wonder, he said, whether our economic reforms led to an individualism in other values, in ways we didn't anticipate. Yet during the 90s, instead of pondering Thatcherism's unintended consequences, many British Conservatives, like their American counterparts, had switched their attention to a scapegoat. The European Union, like Clinton, was pro-business, hardly a fundamental threat to free market conservatism, and the European single market had been partly Thatcher's creation. But like the Clinton presidency, the EU was a rival power centre, and also provocative to conservatives in other ways. It saw politics as about compromise rather than conviction, and was relatively liberal in its social and cultural values. As a new enemy for conservatives, it proved irresistible. Euroscepticism gave British conservatism a dark new energy. There was a malicious glee in the distorted accounts of EU activities produced by The Telegraph's early 90s Brussels correspondent Boris Johnson. But there was also a cost. With some justification, Conservatives had long prided themselves on their attention to facts, to how people actually lived or wanted to live, rather than trying to build utopias as they accused the left of doing. Even the most dogmatic Thatcherites had been keenly aware of social trends such as the rise of individualism and how they might be politically exploited. But starting in the 90s on both sides of the Atlantic, much of the movement ceased to be empirical, Gray says. And without an interest in facts, it is hard to govern well for long. Radical politics in a democracy sometimes requires an excess of belief and a readiness to exaggerate. Minds need to be changed, a sense of crisis created. But under George W. Bush, the Reagan-Thatcher balancing act between propaganda and practical policies gave way to wishful thinking, as if the Republicans had started believing their own rhetoric. Many of Bush's key subordinates were neoconservatives, members of a self-confident right-wing faction, some of them former leftists and Democrats who had become disillusioned during the Cold War with what they saw as the Washington establishment's lack of decisiveness and moral clarity. Neocons believed the US was uniquely powerful and should use that power aggressively to spread its values, and also that sweeping assertions could be used as political weapons to exploit the media's appetite for drama and overcome the inertia of the government bureaucracy. As Bush's strategist Karl Rove reportedly told the journalist Ron Sudskind in 2004, we, the Bush administration, create our own reality. When no weapons of mass destruction were found in Iraq, Bush and his advisers claimed vindication regardless. Bush made a speech from the deck of an aircraft carrier under a banner reading Mission Accomplished. The following year, in 2004, he was re-elected, 
defeating the establishment Democrat and decorated war veteran John Kerry. The neocons had promised that the occupation of Iraq would be a cakewalk. But during Bush's second term, an anti-American insurgency and civil war began there and lasted for more than a decade. Then in 2005, Hurricane Katrina swamped New Orleans. Bush publicly praised his appointee Michael Brown, the underqualified official in charge of alleviating the chaos. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. Days before Brown was forced to resign. American conservatism, as Robin puts it, had acquired an air of decadence. In Britain, the movement's growing carelessness and overconfidence showed itself in smaller ways at first. During the run-up to the 2010 general election, the Conservatives' first real chance to win for 13 years, staff working for David Cameron would sometimes leave sensitive strategy documents lying around in front of journalists. After an unfocused Tory election campaign, Cameron was forced to form a coalition, but often ruled as if he had won decisively anyway, just as Bush had done after being squeezed into power by the US Supreme Court. The Cameron government shrank the state more than any since the 1930s. Many economists warned that imposing austerity on an economy already weakened by the financial crisis would lead to a recession. But Cameron and his Chancellor George Osborne ignored them and instead followed a right-wing press orthodoxy that state spending hindered rather than helped economic growth, unchanged since the 70s despite evidence to the contrary from successful economies ranging from South Korea to Germany. When a recession duly began in Britain in 2011, even former Thatcherite risk-takers such as the former head of her Downing Street policy unit John Hoskins looked at Cameron's slapdash radicalism and shook their heads. Critics of the Cameron government often attributed its lack of rigour to his and Osborne's privileged backgrounds, to a supposed upper-class insouciance. That there was also a less-noticed and less parochially English explanation. Two other key cabinet ministers from less grand backgrounds, the Education Secretary Michael Gove and the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions Ian Duncan Smith, had long been close to American Conservatives and shared their growing impatience with the detail and incrementalism of orthodox government. A senior civil servant who worked for Gove told me he had once told the education secretary, you can't get from A to B just by announcing I'm at B. Meanwhile, Duncan Smith was repeatedly criticised by the UK Statistics Authority for making unfounded claims about the success of his ambitious reforms to the benefit system. I have a belief I am right, he told BBC Radio 4's Today programme in 2013. We have not published evidence, he admitted. But precisely because of this absence, he suggested, his claims could not be dismissed. You cannot disprove what I said. Conservative government now seemed to be as much about sophistry as changing society. It worked electorally for a time. Cameron was re-elected in 2015 with a majority in part because the conservative disregard for facts was shared by much of the right-wing press and by the wider public and media these newspapers influenced. The week before Duncan Smith's Today interview, the polling firm Ipsos Mori published Perceptions Are Not Reality, the results of a survey that asked the public to make statistical estimates about social trends and contentious areas of state spending. In almost every case, from the nature and distribution of state benefits 
to the number of immigrants in Britain, voters were hugely mistaken in ways that matched the government's rhetoric and also coverage of these issues in the right-wing press. People estimate that 34 times more benefit money is claimed fraudulently than official estimates suggest, a typical section of the survey found. If we take back control, if we take back control on June the 23rd, we could also... The logical conclusion of this politics of minimal facts and maximum conviction was the Brexit referendum. Cameron called it, and expected, with characteristic overconfidence, to win it for Remain as if the decades of Eurosceptic journalism had never happened. Gove and Duncan Smith were both prominent in the Leave campaign, which bent statistics out of all recognition. And we are going to make our country great again. And when Trump also won, after a campaign even more based on magical thinking, it seemed that conservatism, or at least a populist mutation of it, still had prospects. One way for conservatism to hang on to power is to play clever electoral games. For a long time, the Tory party has been very successful at squeezing out marginal gains, says Cooper. They've been smarter than the other parties about the process that draws constituency boundaries. And they've fought wedge elections, i.e. finding and pushing issues that divide other parties' potential supporters, such as the possibility of a coalition between Labour and the Scottish Nationalists, which put some English voters off voting Labour in 2015. In elections and in government, Conservatives have also shrewdly, often shamelessly, appealed to their core supporters. The Tory austerity measures have not been applied to pensioners, who are more likely than any other age groups to vote and much more likely to choose the Conservatives. In the US, as the political analyst Thomas Frank noted a decade before Trump's win, the Republicans have often chosen to wage battles where complete victory is impossible, such as over immigration, so that their followers' feelings will be dramatised and their alienation aggravated. The purpose of Trump's proposed border wall is less to keep immigrants out, there are countless other entry points, than to keep his base feeling besieged. With that core vote mobilised, with its electoral impact maximised thanks to a US voting system that disproportionately represents small towns in the countryside, with the Democratic vote minimised thanks to gerrymandering and voter suppression, and with the conservative media grinding away, the American right will continue to eke out election wins. A similar dynamic may keep the Tories winning general elections in Britain. Their 2017 campaign may have been hopeless in most ways, but in one it was highly efficient. Despite getting only 2% more of the vote than Labour, they ended up with 20% more MPs. For many Conservatives, such outcomes are reasons not to worry too much about the future. Cooper says... They think if we carry on winning, why do we need to come up with new policies? Cory Robin argues that until the left in Britain and the US becomes much stronger, wins power and actually takes on conservative interests, conservatism will not change. Unless their class position is truly threatened, he said, what incentive is there to think things are new? Some conservatives also cite the long history of doomy forecasts about their movement. Kessler points out that one of the best-known books to argue that US social trends are undermining the government, 
the emerging Democratic majority by John B. Judis and Retiek Sierra was published almost 20 years ago. Yet the US Democrats' election results have remained patchy since. They have to keep postponing the date for when their great breakthrough will come, Kessler says. In 1994, Gray published The Undoing of Conservatism, a thick, gloomy pamphlet for the centre-right think tank, the Social Market Foundation. He argued persuasively that modern free market conservatism was a self-undermining political project. Since its global and corporate priorities were alienating the small communities and nationalistic voters on whom conservatism had always relied. The pamphlet contained other prescient material about how conservatism would fragment into illiberal movements, evangelism for free markets, and attempts to restore a traditional social order. Yet Gray's most dramatic contention, that Tory Britain is gone for good, reads less well now, with the Conservatives having been in power for almost half the years since. In Britain and the US, the big political story of the last quarter century in many ways has been how, with so little in the way of ideas, talent, administrative competence and electoral support, conservatives have been able to change society so much. In office, they often have a willingness, which liberals and the left often lack, to use the maximum whatever power they have as supporters of American abortion rights are currently discovering to their cost. Yet this era of conservative bluffing and bodging is coming to an end. The climate emergency, the collapse of confidence in capitalism, the rise of inequality to explosive levels, the revival of the radical left. Many conservatives may deny these are happening, but soon their movement is going to have to address them. The real question for conservatives, says Charles Kessler, is what their politics should be about now that Reaganite optimism is no longer possible. Kessler thinks the dark, sometimes apocalyptic conservatism promoted by Bannon and other right-wing populists is too negative and lacks practical proposals. He sees more potential in other elements of the Trump presidency, such as its protectionist economic policies, and stated concern for the country's infrastructure and working class. Kessler argues that these signal a return to the more nationalistic, socially inclusive republicanism of the early 20th century. But even if these concerns are real, rather than just rhetorical, so far the main beneficiaries of Trumpism have been corporations and the wealthy. The republicanism of the early 20th century is a very old-fashioned remedy for the crisis of today's world. And Kessler accepts that Trump's presidency is so personal and idiosyncratic that, even if he is re-elected, his brand of conservatism doesn't offer a lasting solution to the movement's dilemmas. There is no second Trump, Kessler says. Gray still believes a new conservatism is possible but sees no sign so far of anyone coming up with the right formula. What has not emerged anywhere, he says, is a conservatism that protects the things that the market threatens without being illiberal, or a conservatism that travels light without being burdened by economic theory, or a conservatism adapted to how most people are actually living. Modern conservatism in many ways began in California, 
where Reagan was governor from 1967 to 1975. For decades, the state was a laboratory for low taxes, government cutbacks and right-wing activism. Now, thanks to immigration, the growth of California's cities and the spread of urban liberalism, Republicans are virtually an endangered species in statewide offices, as Kessler puts it. Pessimistic conservatives see California's political trajectory as a terrible warning to the right as a whole. But in the state's south, one of conservatism's former electoral strongholds, a self-styled right-wing resistance movement has sprung up. Breitbart News, the far-right website formerly run by Bannon, is based in Los Angeles. So is The Daily Wire, a younger conservative website edited by Ben Shapiro, a melodramatic, not-always-astute former Breitbart editor who, during an acrimonious interview last month, accused the right-wing BBC presenter Andrew Neil of being on the left. At The Daily Wire, all we do all day is talk about ideas, Shapiro told the news website Vox last year because we're living in an area where no policy prescription that you propose will ever be implemented. The left is used to that feeling. In decades to come, conservatives beyond California may have to get used to it as well. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 